Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens the hearts of whomever he wills. Hear the word of the Lord and prepare your heart to hear the word from Tommy. Good morning, Grace Life Church. Happy Palm Sunday. It's a joy to be here. I'm going to pray in just a second. You can keep your Bibles open to that passage that Craig just read. We're going to be in there. We're still in a series, a little mini-series within Romans. We're in a sermon series within a mini-series within a greater series. (laughs) Engage is the Romans series, and Romans 9, 10, and 11 is God's sovereign plan. And Romans 9, 14 through 18 started as a sermon and turned into a little series um, called Let God Be God. So we're going to finish up that little series today. We're going to finish verse 18. But first, just setting the table, today's... Our first Sunday so, uh, of the month, so we're going to have communion. If I forget, maybe you'll remember when I close out the service here, at least the, the sermon part of it, uh, that's your cue if you have children who are believers in Christ, who profess faith in Jesus, and you want to go grab them from the back, the teachers are aware uh, that some of you want to celebrate communion with your families. We really encourage that. You don't have to, but we certainly encourage and welcome you to do that. Um, and the other thing is, just to reiterate what Craig said, we don't pass an offering plate here, but we have a, a tithe donation gift box in the back, and you can always give through our website. Um, and I want to pause and pray not only for our service, but I think Kyle mentioned it also, just uh, several things going on in our nation right now that everyone's just reeling from. Uh, my, my home state, Arkansas, got hit by some pretty savage tornadoes. Some people were died, many injured. Lots of work going on there, lots of need, lots of emergencies, uh, lots of tears and pain and grief and people trying to piece together um, what's left of their lives. And, and also, of course, in Nashville, uh, the tragic shooting that happened. So let's just pause and, and, and pray for God to be present. We heard last week, Psalm 46, God is, a, God is our refuge, very present help in time of trouble. And be still, stop striving, submit, surrender to God, let God be God. Let's, let's pray that together and then dig in his word together. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts, we bow our heads today. In this moment, we acknowledge you. We acknowledge that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world where we see pockets of evil and oppression and injustice and tyranny and terrorism and we, and we see heartache and pain and murder and people using the brains that you gave them and the technology and the resources, uh, Lord, to, to kill innocent victims like three nine-year-old children. The, the fact that a church was targeted, that a, uh, that a pastor's daughter was targeted, Lord, tells us maybe even something more sinister going on. We know that the Satan is a roaring lion and he seeks to oppose and hinder and destroy and intimidate <clears throat> We're thankful that he is on a, a, a sovereign leash. I pray for the people that are left in the, the wake of the tragedy in Nashville, Lord. I pray for that church. I pray for the families of the victims. I pray for the survivors, Lord, that will never forget this day. Help them to look to you. May you be their refuge today, Lord. Thank you that the carnage wasn't worse. Thank you for the first responders. Thank you for restraining grace. There's a million ways we can thank you, even in the midst of of dark, evil, tragic occurrences and experiences like that. Lord, I pray for the people in Arkansas who were hit with those tornadoes. Lord, I know much more, much worse things could have happened. I I always envision your finger when a storm, a hurricane, or a tornado hits, Lord. You direct its path. Sometimes you, 
move it around large populations, and sometimes it goes right through the middle of a city, Lord. But there's always mercy if we look. I pray for the, the families of those, Lord, who were killed, those who were injured and recovering, for all the government agencies that are scrambling to, to, to bring help and resources for Samaritans. I know that it'll be deploying soon. I pray that you'd be glorified, Lord. Make your name great through all of this. May the church rise up and serve. And we pray for our time together, Lord. Please help us. There are beautiful, wonderful, powerful realities that are breathtaking and stunning in this chapter. And sometimes they're seen as so provocative, Lord, that we, we miss the beauty in there. We miss what Paul is ultimately aiming at in the end of chapter 11, worship. Worship, Lord. It's about worship. How, how past finding out are your ways, Lord. How inscrutable are you, Lord. You're mysterious and we, we embrace that mystery. We know that you're God and we are not. You're in heaven and we're on earth. And some things are too marvelous, too wonderful for us to, in our mind, piece together logically, philosophically, in a, in a way that we're satisfied with. We're left with the mystery of you are God and we are not, Lord. And that's a good thing for us. So help us to just bow to your infinite wisdom, your sovereign prerogatives, your care, and to trust you, Lord. You are the most trustworthy being in the world. You are holy, and that means you cannot sin, and that means you cannot sin against us, and that means you are trustworthy. Thank you, God. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, last Thursday morning, on the way to taking my boys to school, we were involved in a collision. Thankfully, for us, it was minor, and we're all fine. This, uh, this blue Jeep in this picture rear-ended us. That green car right there rear-ended the Jeep. Can you see that? Yeah. That green car right there rear-ended the Jeep, and uh, here's a drive-by picture of the wreck. We barely felt the impact at all, thank God. I don't think I've been in a collision of any kind. Well, the week before last, I hit a tree. I backed into it. My kids thought that was funny. But... So there's that, if they're listening. <laughs> but it's been 30 years since I was involved in a collision, and that was minor, just tracing, tracing God's mercy. We barely felt the impact. It did minimal damage to my car. It amounted to ripping my license plate a little bit. I didn't even actually stay. The cops let me go. So... Uh, Gave my boys a thrill and gave them an excuse to be late for work. And they talked about it for a long time, still are. Um, the person who caused the accident in that crumpled hood that you saw, his car was totaled. His face was bloody. He was confused. He was afraid. He was hurt. I think he may have got a concussion. His, uh, his airbag did not deploy and his face full impact hit the steering wheel. Knocked, I think, some teeth out. Broke either his nose or his face. But he wasn't worried about himself. He jumped out of the car, opened the back seat, pulled his screaming daughter out of the car seat, and they were, they were okay as far as I know. It didn't seem to be life-threatening. The person he rear-ended was shocked but not hurt, the person in the Jeep. But his, she, but his Jeep was shocked and hurt. It would probably be totaled, even though it's hard to tell in that picture. It crumpled the whole thing. His sister in the passenger seat, she was walking around in a daze, uh, confused. She was dazed and confused, I guess you could say. The person who hit the person who hit the Jeep uh, seemed to be happy to have something to do. He, uh, he got out of his car. He was walking around smiling, talking to people, interviewing people, <laughs> even though he didn't have an official office of any kind that I could tell. Put his dog on a leash, was just browsing around, walking between cars. I think he was just grateful to have something interesting to do. And then came the first responders, asking who was hurt, inquiring who witnessed the accident, what happened, was the sun in that person's eyes. I think a school bus stopped ahead of us. I'm thankful it wasn't my fault. It's the first thing you think of, right? Who caused the accident, asking for documentation, license or registration. And then there were people who were upset that the wreck happened because it's interfering with their morning commute, right? They, they don't want the wreck to happen. They're not concern really at all if anybody got hurt or if it was a fatality involved. They're just bothered by the fact that it's there and they want to get on their way. And of course, some drivers were oblivious to the thing at all. They didn't even see it. They didn't even know what happened. 
And then first, some first responders were directing people around it, saying there's nothing to see here, go on your way. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because as I reflect on that collision, a kind of a parable emerged in my mind about Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, this chapter is kind of like a collision for a lot of people. It really is. I've been a Christian since I was 22, I'm 48. And early in my Christianity, I discovered this chapter uh, and had thought about it quite often, have taught on it, have listened to sermons on it, read books about it. And I've noticed the reaction that people have when they encounter this chapter in their Bible, some of them for the first time, because there is a collision. There's the way you think about God, the way you think about salvation, the way you think about God's operations in the world. And sometimes there's this collision with the way things actually are who God actually is in reality, as he is revealed to be in Scripture. And there's a collision. There's our thoughts, and then there's what the Bible says. And different people, depending on their background, depending on their views, depending on their theology, kind of fit into some of those characteristics I gave you of the collision. Some people are angry, they're hurt, and they're confused. It feels like a concussion. It's like, what in the world happened? I'm spitting blood out, my teeth are missing, I broke my nose. What the heck? God's sovereign? What do you you mean? What are you talking about? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He skipped over Ishmael. He chose Isaac as the son of promise. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses was a vessel of mercy. Wow, what in the world? Concussion. Take me, put me in the ambulance. Some people are entertained by it. They're like, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to study this the rest of my life. It's the only thing I'm going to talk about. Where's my dog? Check this out. I'm going to blog about it. I'm going to read books about it. That's the only thing I'm ever going to teach about. Some people uh, are angry about this. They don't want this to be in the Bible, and they would rather it not be there, and they're going to do everything they can to shield everyone else from it and just go on their way, right? And then there's some people who gooseneck in an unhealthy way, and they slow down traffic. (laughs) And then there's some people who are teachers who are saying, nothing to see here. Go on. You don't even need to stop. Get out of here. We're not going to teach on this. These chapters are a distraction. I don't know where everyone in listening to my voice and, and sitting in front of me fall, but probably to one degree or the other, you would, you would fit into one of those characteristics, right, of this chapter. There is a collision. Romans chapter 9 hits some people differently. So I want to start today's message by answering a question, just in case you're spitting blood a little bit. I've gotten some great emails and text and even phone calls and, and sit-downs with people, and I'm so, guys, I'm so proud in the right way. I use that word, hopefully, the right way. I'm so proud of Grace Life Church, because I've never taught on this before. It's been eight years. When we come to this teaching in a, in, a, in a verse, we'll elaborate on it. That's the beauty of committing to going through a book, right? Whatever's in there, you've got to deal with it. You can't ignore it. At least you shouldn't. Some people probably do, but you shouldn't. Um, so I'm proud of Grace Life Church for saying, this is what the Word of God says. We've got to wrap our minds around this as best we can and understand it, and hopefully it'll lead us to worship. If this is who God is, then this is who we worship Him as, and we're thankful for it because we know God is good, God is wise, God is trustworthy, He's perfect, He's just, He's righteous, and He's sovereign. And He's sovereign over the most important area in the world, salvation. You know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The cross was not plan B in any stretch of the imagination. That was God's plan A from all eternity. So I thought today it might be good to answer a question that some people have. Because when you hear this text, we're in verse 18 today. He has mercy on whom he wills, and whomever he wills he hardens. Ooh, that's... That's the bloody nose to a lot of people, right? That's the airbag did not deploy. What the heck, pastor? Uh, and it arises, a question arises in their heart that scares them. God can harden people? God has hardened people? I don't like that, pastor. I don't like that language. Never heard that in the Bible before. Never seen that. So my question is, man, I know people and they're unbelievers and they seem to have a hardened heart. Does that mean this is them? But the bigger question, the deeper question to ask is, can God overcome a hardened heart? Does a hardened heart represent an obstacle too tall, too thick, too deep for God to melt? Man, you don't, man, my introduction's done then, right? Can, is there anything, you know, Sarah, when she was in the tent listening to Abraham and the Lord talk about this time next year, 
God, the Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to bear a son. And she went, and she laughed, which in, in Hebrew is Isaac. That's what her son was named. The son of promise was named Isaac because she laughed. Remember, uh, the, 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 she had this argument. He said, you laughed. She said, I didn't laugh. He said, but you did laugh. <laughs> but the question was, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Hey, are we not evidence, right? How many people in this room had a hard heart toward the gospel, toward Jesus Christ, toward Christianity? Everybody raise your hand. You've either had a hard heart or you have one right now. Ooh! Because <laughs> right? the Bible says everyone's heart is hardened who doesn't believe. We'll get, we'll get to that a little bit later. If not today, a little bit later. But yes, God can melt the hardest heart, man. And the author of this epistle is proof positive. Anybody in here kill Christians? Drag them out of the church? Muttering threats? You got letters from headquarters that say, kill those Christians, man. Get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth being resurrected idea. Paul did. He said he was ignorant. He did it in ignorance. He was blinded. His heart was hardened. And God overcame his hardened heart and melted it. And now he's, yeah, one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived. So, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 is the new covenant. And it says this, God will remove the heart of what? Stone. As an unbeliever, you know what kind of heart you have spiritually? A heart of stone. Is there anything harder than a stone? I mean, maybe a diamond, but that wouldn't work. You have a heart of diamond. Man, you're great. Heart of stone, stone, cold, dead, immovable, no pulse, flatlined. And we're New Covenant Christians, and that means what has happened, what has transpired is a miracle. It's supernatural. God took your heart of stone, and he replaced it and put a heart of flesh, tender, open, humble, receptive, the scales fall from your eyes, man, not because you made them fall, because God made them fall. So is there any heart too hard for God? No, there's not. So if you're concerned because you know somebody that's stubborn, man, don't let this passage discourage you. Let it encourage you. God's sovereign over every hard heart in the world. This is a cautionary tale. It's a warning. Don't harden your heart. You know, the Bible says that multiple times. Do not harden your heart the way that the children of Israel did in the wilderness, there's even the, the verse, this is a shameless plug for community groups. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, Do not harden your heart and take care, brothers, lest an evil heart of unbelief arise within you, carry you away from the living God, and your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Do you know that? We, even as believers, our heart can grow calloused and cold and aloof and, diff, and, and distant from God. And part of the remedy is we encourage one another every day. We exhort one another. That's a great reason for you to be in a community group. How many people have had a heart you felt like was adrift and cold and aloof and a Christian brother or sister came alongside of you and like took that thing that you see in chimneys they probably don't use anymore? Man, I love those things though. Right? Are you blowing the campfire? That's what you do, man. You fire those embers up in somebody's heart. You warm it. God uses you as an instrument. You're not the miracle. He's the miracle. You're just a channel. You're like a copper line that electric, supernatural, sovereign energy flows through you. That's amazing, isn't it? It makes me want to be an agent in God's, in God's hand. Robert Murray McShane said, uh, a holy Christian or a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of the Lord. God loves to use us as conduits to reach hard hearts. Martin Luther, the reformer, he was arguing with Erasmus, the humanist, over the human will, whether it was a will that was in bondage or whether it was a will that was truly free and uninfluenced. And you remember, he said at one point to Erasmus, he said, your thoughts of God are too human. Let God be God. Let God be God. And we've called this chapter, or at least these verses, Let God Be God. That's the title. Uh, and today is also Palm Sunday. And listen, it's no secret. Your pastor is sometimes oblivious. Whew. Things on the church calendar, unless it's Christmas, Advent, or Easter, they go right over my head sometimes. I've I got a story to tell you about that, but not today. We'll run out of time. I was, I was once asked to preach on Pentecost on the spot in another country when I had a totally different sermon prepared because it was Pentecost Sunday, and that taught me a lesson. You better pay attention to the calendar, buddy, because other countries take it more serious than Western Christians sometimes. Anyway, today is Palm Sunday, and that means it's the start of Holy Week. It's Jesus walking into Jerusalem. Some people call it the triumphal entry. He entered Jerusalem. That's in like 
I think all four of the Gospels at one point in the narrative. Jesus gets on a donkey. They lay out what you were given today, wrapped in this beautiful cross that Allison and her family did. Uh, palm fronds, they would lay those in the road. Some of them would fan them, and they would shout, Hosanna God, save us, as Jesus marched into Jerusalem, humble on, on a, the colt of a donkey. So this is, that happened one week before his passion, one week before the, the resurrection and then subsequent, excuse me, crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. And so we celebrate the, that today on Palm Sunday. So I'm thinking, man, how can I, without it being clumsy and awkward, how can I tie Palm Sunday into Romans 9 and God harden their hearts? Uh, and so I want to do this. I'm going to read a passage from John 12. You don't have to turn to it. John chapter 12 is the triumphal entry. Let me, let me read that. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then some other things are mentioned, and then we get down to verse 19, and we see the Pharisees' reaction. I mean, they hate that. Can you imagine anything worse than hating Jesus and having to stand by while the whole city is waving palm branches, like welcoming a Messiah, a king, and saying, Hosanna, God, save us. Oh, their hearts are so hardened. They're so angry, and they say this. The Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They recognize more and more control is slipping out of their fingers, and Jesus is gaining in fame and, and notoriety and popularity, and they're losing followers left and right. It even says a little bit later in that, chapters, many, that chapter, many of the authorities believed in him. So something strange is happening to the Pharisees. What's happening to them? Their hearts are hardening. That's right. And whose fault is that? that <laughs> you guys are like, we're not sure yet. Who bears the blame for a hard heart? They do. That's right. When you have a hard heart, whose fault is it? It's your fault. That's right. Always. Always your fault. When something good happens to you, give God glory. He gets, he gets the credit. When something bad happens, sinful <laughs> that happens, you, you bear the blame. You do. Always. As a rule. Um, so a little bit later in the chapter, the Pharisees start to argue with Jesus. And he says this. Check this out. Here's my Palm Sunday meets Romans 9. Are you ready? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you. Man, that's a warning that I could preach a sermon on. Today you are in the light. The light is shining on you. Not me. I'm no light. The word of God. The presence of Christ. That you're hearing the word of God. That you're here with relative freedom hearing God's word. This is light. Praise God for it. And Jesus issues a warning. You know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, which is kind of almost a, he's acting out a parable. <laughs> he's warning these people who had the light of his presence, who, who had hardened hearts, they're, they're disbelieving, they're angry. He's talking to them, and then he goes and hides. Isn't that interesting? And then verse seven, 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, or who has believed the report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. So there is the very day that Palm Sunday happened in the New Testament. We see the very same thing happening here in Romans chapter 9 that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Which is way back in Old Testament history, something that happened to Pharaoh's heart. God gives us light. He gives us opportunities. We reject those opportunities. We're dismissive. We refuse to believe. We're calloused. We grow stubborn and obstinate. And something really frightening happens and tragic happens. Our heart begins to grow calloused. I've told you, 
you know, not to put on a fancy Greek word, but the Greek word for hardened their hearts in Romans 9 is the word from which we get sclerosis. And it means a thickening of the tissue in the body. It's a disease that's characterized by a thickening and a hardening of tissue that can result in all kinds of catastrophic damage, even death, depending on where the tissue is. So there's this hardening, and it doesn't, one day you don't wake up and your whole body's rigid, you know. It starts very small, like most things do. Disbelief starts to grow and grow, out of control. And before you know it, you wake up one day and you're like, I don't want anything to do with Christianity or the church or God or the Bible anymore. Spare me. And then we read a passage like that and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're like, man, why does God do that? <laughs> And the lesson here, it's a, it's a cautionary tale, and it's also a reminder, be careful. Because when you tamper with the light that God has shined on you, when you reject God over and over again, there can become, it can turn into a judicial harding where God hands you over. You're constantly moving toward idolatrous practices and things that are forbidden in Scripture and things that we are warned against. And something mysterious and, and eerie happens in the human heart. You turn into a monster. And God says, that's what you want. That's what you want. Then your will be done then. And God turns you over. He hands you over. Just like he says three times in Romans 1. He gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them over uh, to unnatural passions. He gave them over to, to, to debased life. Three times. Paradidomy means to hand over to Judgment. And I told you that word basically means somebody, the word picture, somebody in a canoe that's paddling desperately with the current toward a waterfall and a force is holding them back. And then they turn around and start hitting the force with the paddle and he lets them go. That's what it means to give somebody over in the Bible. That's what it means for somebody's heart to be hardened. That person bears the blame. They're wanting desperately to go in this direction and eventually God lifts restraint. And here's a side note. This is, this is what I believe is the biblical interpretation of the last days. When the Antichrist is unleashed, I believe God's going to remove so much restraint from the world. And you're going to see hell unleashed in a way you haven't seen it before. Hearts are going to grow hard. You know, you read in those last days that God is sending all these plagues and balls of fire on the planet. And it says that people gnaw their tongues in pain. And they blaspheme the God of heaven. And they call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. And they hide themselves. And it says, but they will not repent. Do you know why they won't repent? This is, this is scary. Because they have a hardened heart and because they can't repent. Because God has given them up. So I feel like I would be derelict in my responsibility as a pastor. As I didn't issue this as a warning. A gracious warning. Be careful when you start drifting away from God. And be careful, especially if you're an unbeliever and your life is growing into a pattern of more and more hatred, animosity, hostility, and resistance toward the things of God. Man, that is something you do not tamper with. Because sometimes God says, when you're circling the drain and you're fighting over the light switch, God says, all right, have it your way. I'll leave the light out. John 3 says, this is the judgment. This is the judgment, Jesus says, that light has came into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And therefore, God leaves the light off. The opposite of Motel 6, right? We'll leave the light on for you. God doesn't always make that promise. And that's his sovereign prerogative. The fact that he shows anybody mercy should, should throw us in the sand on our face and say, Lord, you are amazing. I don't deserve to see Christ, I don't deserve to understand the gospel. I don't deserve this opportunity to repent and trust you and believe the gospel and be converted. So, there's our outline. We finished the first two. I'm just going to jump into the last one here. It's, it's Romans 14 through 18. Craig read it already. And I'm going to read the last part here. Because... Paul is trying to help us understand God's sovereignty and salvation. Why did so many Israelites not believe in the Messiah? Why did they reject him? He came to his own, John 1, and his, his own did not receive him, right? Jesus came to his people, the Jews, and by and large, they rejected him. Crucify him, crucify him. The crowds turned fickle, and Jesus went to a cruel cross because his, his people rejected him. 
And Paul is explaining why that happened. God had a purpose for it. And he's using Moses and Pharaoh and the Exodus in the Old Testament as an illustration. One of the last things he says here is, so then he has mercy. Here, let me back up one verse. Yeah. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, right, this is the last point. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. He's quoting Exodus chapter 9. We'll look at it in a second. For this very purpose, I've raised you up. What purpose, God? Why did, all these th- Why did God allow Pharaoh to resist him over and over and over? Moses and Aaron marched into Pharaoh's throne room, and they said, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, let my people go so that they may go and serve me in the wilderness. And he says, I don't, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know him, and I'm certainly not letting my slave labor go free. You Israelites are amazing. Keep building Ramses. Keep building my cities. You ain't going nowhere. In fact, the fact that you're saying this reminds me, I need to give you more work to do. So here, go get your own straw to make bricks. How's that? So from the very get-go, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And you know what God could have done? Think of all the things that God could have done. God could have taken his divine finger. I'll do this. I'm, I feel cruel for saying this. Sometimes a fly, I hate flies, man. They're disgusting. They're gross. They lay eggs on food. I just want to prove my dexterity to my, to my kids, and there'll be a fly that's lit down, and I'll take my finger and my thumb, and I'll say, what's this? Bing! <laughs> God, could God have done that to Pharaoh? Would it have been any match for divine omnipotence for him to do that? To, here's Pharaoh, and he says, no, who's the Lord that I should? <clears throat> okay, now you guys can go. But God didn't do that. In fact, a little bit later in Romans 9, it says, he endures with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared beforehand. Uh, vessels of wrath prepared, passive tense, for destruction. With much endurance. What's that mean? God has a long fuse. And Pharaoh initially said no. And God said, all right, the answer is no. So uh, I'm going to send some plagues here. It was actually God having mercy on Pharaoh. God could have thumped him and squashed him, but he didn't. And there's a reason why. What is, what is the reason that God endured and tolerated Moses' perpetual rejection, stubbornness, obstinance, and unbelief. And in the meantime, him persecuting his people, making them work harder, not removing the quota. They still had to make just as many bricks and build Ramses as before. But this time with their own straw they gathered. He says this, For this very purpose I've raised you up. And that word raised up, it means I've brought Pharaoh onto the world stage in history and I've allowed him to survive through all these chapters in Exodus. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Guys, got to underline that. If you don't get that, you're not going to understand anything else in Romans 9. What is God after? What's the end game? That God's name may be seen. That his fame may be heard. That he may be glorified in all the earth. That's a very, very, very serious ambition of God. And it's the right one. I've used the illustration, the sun is at the center of the universe. Why? Because if it's not at the center, wait, yeah, the sun is at the center of our universe. And because it's at the center, everything is in its proper orbit. If the sun was closer and and not, you know, we're no longer a heliocentric universe, we're in trouble. We're either going to melt or freeze or go spinning off, careening into outer space because the sun holds everything in check. When it's at the center. And when God's glory is at the center, that is a good thing for us. If we let something else get in the center of our lives, man, we get, we, we get wrecked. We turn in on ourselves. Like Augustine used to say, uh, homo incurvitus. It means man's turned in on himself. Right? When we're at the center, nothing works. We break everything. When God's at the center, everything is in its proper orbit. And so God is the only being in the universe worthy of craving his own glory and he does and he takes that very serious i was reading the other day in acts chapter 12 it says herod herod killed james and he threw peter in prison it's easy just to read through that no no, no. herod took one of the apostles and he slaughtered him and then he put peter one of the inner circle of disciples in prison and of course you know the church prayed fervently for him and, and peter was rescued by an angel uh, but Herod's so proud, he's so narcissistic, he's so full of himself. And listen, guys, there are many Gentile rulers who were, and God saved them. But Herod, Herod crossed a line. And one day he's given a speech, and the people are calling out, do you remember this? 
Herod put on all his royal robes and his crown, put on his purple uh, king's robe, and he went out and he made a speech, and the people started chanting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And you know what the Bible says? An angel struck him, and he got worms, and was eaten, and he died. And it says it in that order. And it says, because he did not give God glory. So Herod's saying, look at me. Look how amazing I am. The people are sounding, oh, you're like a God. You're divine, Herod. You're amazing. The voice of a God and not of a man. And it says, because he did not give God glory, an angel struck him, and he was given worms, and he was eaten by those worms. And you can read the, the history. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about how disgusting and gross his innards were coming out. They were putrid, and, and I'm sorry, that's pretty disgusting for church. It's just amazing. Why did that happen? Because he did not give God glory. Because he didn't give God glory, and God said, that's enough. Here's some worms for you. There's only one king around here, buddy. Only one king worthy of glory, and it's not you, Herod. And I don't take kindly to you killing my apostle either, even though I planned it. You know? God's glory is at the center. And he says the purpose for which Pharaoh was tolerated and even raised up was so that God's power might be seen in him. And so that's central to what's going on in this chapter. God wants his power to be on display. One of the first verses I ever memorized as a Christian was in 2 Chronicles 16.9. And it says this, and I'm, forgive me, I'm using the New King James Version. That's the first Bible I ever read. It said, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself Powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal or whole or complete toward him. So the eyes of the Lord, God's roaming the whole earth. What's, he, what's, God, roam, what's God wanting to do? Show himself powerful. That's what God wants to do. People say, well, what's God's will to show himself powerful? When, when God already wants that and when you want that, that's, beautiful things happen. That's why we pray for revival, for renewal, for restoration. Raise up your church, Lord. Do something amazing. The eyes of the Lord, to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful. Now, the, the devil, the devil goes back. Remember in Job, where have you been? Oh, I've been going to and fro on the whole earth. Why? What's the devil do? He goes back and forth seeking to devour, right? But God goes back and forth too. He wants to show himself powerful. We see that all over the Bible. And listen, I'll say it this way, the exodus, that's, by the way, that's Israel's redemptive, that's their redemptive event in the Old Testament. If anybody were to ask, is God powerful? Oh yeah, he's powerful. How do you know? They wouldn't say because he created the world. They wouldn't, isn't that amazing? God spoke ex nihilo. One of my kids the other day, he was writing out Genesis 1-1, and he's a, I start to say he's a cheater. I didn't mean it, mean it that way. He's a short cutter, and he wrote, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. I said, no, 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 time out. I know made's a shorter word, but it's a different word. The word's created. And he goes, why does that matter? I said, well, why does it matter? I said, when your sisters make slime, what do they do? He goes, well, they, they get, you know, glue. Does anybody else have this problem in their house? They get glue, they get activator, or they get that. The store, that's right, it's already there. They make slime. God didn't make the world with stuff that was already there. He created it. We say in Latin, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, so creation's powerful, right? But if you were to ask an Israelite, like, hey, is God powerful? Oh, yeah, he's amazing. How do you know? <laughs> because of the Red Sea, because of Exodus, because of the plagues, because of Pharaoh. They wouldn't, they wouldn't cite creation, which was two chapters. They would cite Exodus, which was like 15 chapters. I know Exodus has more chapters, but the event... The exodus out of Egypt, it, that was a major event. And that's why, I, that's exactly where Paul goes in Romans chapter 9. And he says, hey, look, God, hey, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did he do that? Because God wanted to demonstrate something that nobody else in the world knew at that time. But they were going to know, they were going to hear about it. What's that? God's powerful. And if you put him in the pantheon of all the false gods and goddesses in the world, they're going to topple like dominoes. People say, yeah, easier said than done. Well, okay. I like to envision when, when Moses walked in speaking on behalf of God. And he said, hey, Pharaoh, uh, you don't know him yet, but Yahweh sent me. And uh, he actually wants us to go. We're, we're done here. Thank you for harboring us for, you know, uh, 400 years. But, but we're done, bro. We're out. And Pharaoh's like, ha, ha, ha. No, no you're not. And, and Moses is like, yeah, actually, we are. 
we're actually leaving. We're packing. We're leaving. He said, now look, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. We're, we're going to leave. I can just imagine that. And Pharaoh's saying, do you not understand who I am? I'm a god. I'm the most powerful man in all of Egypt. I reign and rule over this empire. And, uh, you know, I'll fight Yahweh. We'll arm wrestle or whatever. And God's like, look, you, you really don't want to do that. Trust me. You know, because every plague is another false god or goddess in Egypt that God is toppling over. Every single one of them, God is demonstrating his power over the weather, over livestock, uh, over the river, over, every, over gnats, over locusts, over everything. God is showing his supremacy. And listen, guys, had Pharaoh's heart not been hardened, none of those attributes of God would have been seen. It would have just been like, hey, there's this God, he probably never heard of them, but he actually, he killed Pharaoh and he like, He's, he sent all of his Israelites out of there because Pharaoh wouldn't let them and God killed them and got them out of the way. No, it's this long 15 chapter ordeal. It's a contest. It's a contest. When we hear of a boxing heavyweight champion, there's always an arena and there's a fight and there's an audience, right? Then we know they are the undisputed, right? It's undisputed. How do we know it's undisputed? Because we've watched them, man. They've toppled every contender. That's what God's doing. God wants to show his supremacy, so if you think that the Exodus is just about God liberating the Israelites, you're, you're falling so short. God had a much more global, uh, world-reaching goal in mind that his name would be proclaimed in all the world. And why is that important? Well, the very next chapter in Romans is chapter 10, and it says this, whoever calls on what? The name of the Lord will be saved. Question, guys, how are you going to call on the name of somebody that you've never heard of before? You, you won't. You can't. So how are you going to hear about the name of the Lord? Well, he's got he's to show his power. And he did that. He did it well. And Pharaoh kept resisting and kept being obstinate and kept hardening his heart. And so it was only after the sixth plague that God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. All the other times, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Because that's a problem that a lot of people have. How can God do that? How can God tamper with somebody? You know, I remember... This is probably a stupid illustration. I remember the first laptop I have. Somebody, somebody gave me a laptop in 2005. Somebody gave Sarah and I a Hewlett-Packard laptop. And it was amazing. It had Wi-Fi capability. I'd never heard that before. And I, and I remember telling her, I'm like, honey, this is so cool. We can actually sit on the couch. No cords, no Ethernet, no nothing. I feel so old saying this. And I'm like, and we can actually be online. She goes, get out of here. I'm like, no, we can check our Yahoo account. It's crazy. And then I tried to do it and, it, and it messed up. And I remember I was so angry. I was so angry. And even though the computer was given to me, that's just like humans, huh? And I called the helpline and was, you know, you can imagine how that went. And, and the person ended up saying, look, you're pretty much an idiot. You have no tech muscle in your body. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to, somebody help me. What's the word when they take over your computer? Remote. I'm going to have to remotely access your computer. Basically, commandeer the controls on your computer. And I'm like, okay, go for it. He said, no, no, you got to like sign all, you got to fill out all this stuff. And I'm like, why? He said, but, you know, he's like, well, technically I would have access to your passwords. And I, didn't, I was too stupid back then to even know. I'm like, well, okay, that's fine, whatever. Fill this thing out. And it was so crazy, man. He's like moving, he's moving the cursor, he's opening windows. Um, Nothing bad. I didn't get hacked or anything like that. But I thought I had to sign permission for him to be able to, to have access to, to my private world and, and do things with what I own that I possessed. Uh, and here's my point. God doesn't have to do that. <laughs> Nobody else laughed. It was an awkward moment. Yeah, you don't ha God doesn't have to get you to sign a waiver. You're already his. You know that? And God's just and he's righteous and he's holy. And so he's trustworthy. He's the most trustworthy being in the entire world. I mean, is there somebody that you would trust with the password to your phone? Is there somebody in the world you would trust? God's more trustworthy than that person. Does that help a little bit? <laughs> He's trustworthy. You don't need to feel threatened by this unless, unless you have a hard, obstinate heart of unbelief and you think you're going to play fast and loose with God and in the end you're going to rein control back in. No, you may not. You may swirl that drain and God may pull the plug for you because that's what you want. That's what Pharaoh wanted. Pharaoh wanted to contest God. And, and God said, you don't want to do that. Here's a warning. Look, I control the locust. No, I control the frogs. No, I control the river. No, I control the hail. Okay, Pharaoh, this is about to get serious. This is your last chance. And that takes us to Exodus chapter 9. Let me read this. 
Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. Exodus chapter 9, I want to read this because this is incredible. Man, I thought I marked it in my Bible. That's all right. I know where Exodus is. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to find Obadiah or something, it may take me a minute. What, do you know where Obadiah is? <laughs> Exodus chapter 9. Let me read this, this part of this chapter because it's incredible. And I, I know we're going to probably, we're not going to run out of time. I'm going to finish and we're going to do communion, all right? So no worries. Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. So there's something's different about this plague. It's hail. It's weather. It's going to be lightning and, and death is going to ensue. And he, in Hebrew, it literally says here, I will send the full force of all my plagues. All my signs will go into your very heart. That's what it says. I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What's he trying to get across to Pharaoh? Pharaoh, I'm not a household deity, bro. I'm not a local deity like the false gods and goddesses of Egypt. I'm different. I'm supreme. I sit above all of them, ruling and reigning. Nobody's going to contest me and walk away. You included. Final warning. Final warning. And he says, verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. The word there is actually plague, like bubonic plague. He says, I could have killed you already. Remember the, remember that? He could have done that, the first plague. And he didn't. He said, I've been patient. I've warned you over and over. I could have snuffed you out of existence, but I haven't. And you would have been cut off from the earth, but for this purpose, and here's what Paul's quoting. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. See, there's grace there. There really is. He says, I'm going to show you my power. I've already shown it to you, and you've resisted it. You're going to see it one final time, and then you're done. Your heart is going to be beyond repair. For this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And then he goes down into uh, what's going to happen, the weather. And God is showing, man, it's just so amazing. He, and, and, and all the region of Egypt, except for one part, Goshen, where God's people were, the Israelites, massive destruction and, and uh, the hail just wreaks havoc and kills and destroys everything. To the extent that the next chapter, even the servants are begging Pharaoh. They're like, do you not know? Are you the last person in Egypt that doesn't, say we're, that doesn't see that we're ruined? Let him go already. Let him go. So that's what this is all about, God's name being declared. And what I want to do, maybe in closing out, is I just want to show you a few of the ramifications from this. Because people are like, man, it just doesn't seem fair to me. Why would God do that to Pharaoh? Well, here, let me show you real quick. Here we go. Here's the ten plagues in Pharaoh's heart. Can you guys see that? The first one is blood. Pharaoh's heart became hard, it says. So Pharaoh did it. Uh, second plague, frogs. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So, so far, who's responsible for this? Pharaoh, okay. Third plague, gnats. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Fourth plague, flies. Pharaoh what? Hardened his own heart. Fifth Livestock die. Pharaoh's heart was hard. <laughs> Sound like somebody in elementary. All right. Sixth plague. Oh, man. I've got to wear my glasses next time, Cliff. It's, it's getting time, man. Boils. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there you go. Sixth plague. We see it. God is saying, that's enough. And then the seventh that we just read, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then locust. God announces that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart in the darkness. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Death of the firstborn, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So do you see a transition there? Something happens, right? Something happens. Gar uh, Pharaoh kept on hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart, and then God pulled the plug. So don't read this and think, oh man, Pharaoh was such a nice guy. He's docile. He's innocent. He's a good ruler. He's building up Egypt. 
No, he was a cruel tyrant. He's a figure of, he's an, a foreshadowing, I would call him a typology of the Antichrist. He hates God. He hates God's people. Remember, he's throwing babies in the Nile River because he feels threatened by how quickly the Israelites are multiplying. He's throwing them in the river. And God comes along and offers him an out. He says, hey, you've been oppressive. You've been cruel. Tell you what, let my people go and we're good. He says, not on your life. And God says, no, not on your life. And that's what happens. They arm wrestle and Pharaoh loses. I often, you know, sin makes a fool, guys, out of all of us. It makes a fool out of, I often wondered when Pharaoh's heart became so hardened, even after they were released from Egypt, and he changed his mind. I mean, his nation is in shambles. And he gathers together his charioteers, and he's chasing them down into the Red Sea. I have to wonder, what was the last thing that went through Pharaoh's mind as he hears this wobbling noise? The wobble, it must have been terrible. As he hears this reverberating, thunderous noise as the, the walls of that water begin to cave in on him. What was the last thing that went through his mind, I wonder? Probably hatred. Just like cursing God in his heart. Sin makes a fool out of all of us, doesn't it? But here's what I wanted, here's what I wanted to show you. Exodus chapter 14. This is, this is Moses at the Red Sea. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they may go in after them, and I will get glory. You hear, see this? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now check this out. This is Joshua chapter 2. And there's a, there's a harlot named Rahab. She lives in Jericho. God's people have been sent to Jericho because that's the promised land. And that's, they're, they're about to take that city out. And check this out. This is what Rahab says to the two spies that God sends in there. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land, excuse me, all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have what? Heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So because Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God's getting glory for himself and his fame is spreading to a Gentile city. Now guys, hopefully you're starting to smell why this is good news for you. How many people in here are Gentiles? Do you know, had Pharaoh's heart not been hardened, you would have never heard of God. I, I believe that with all my heart. She, all the, by the way, a lot of Egyptians left Egypt. And went with God's people. Do you know why? Because they saw their whole religious system was bunk. If you've been told all your life, happy, the, the, the river of the Nile is supreme. And Pharaoh is God's son and he's supreme. And you witness that? You may start to think, I'm with Moses. <laughs> I'm going with him. And your God is my God, right? So they travel into Jericho. Rahab and her entire family repent, become converted. And by the way, she's the great, 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 great grandmother of... Jesus, did you know that? Pretty amazing, guys. I mean, man, that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it? Some of you don't believe me. You can go check that out after the sermon, all right? Here's the next thing that happened. How many people know who, know who Jethro is? No, not the guy on TV. There's another Jethro. How many people have heard of Jethro? He's Moses' father-in-law, right? Did you know before Jethro is called Moses' father-in-law in the Bible, he's called the priest of Midian, which is translated pagan, right? Jethro was a Gentile, and he was a pagan, and he was a priest in a pagan system, and Jethro heard about what Yahweh had done, because Moses meets him in the wilderness after all the deliverance, and he tells him, check this out, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, of the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced. 
for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then this is my favorite part. Now I what? Now I know that the Lord is greater than our gods. Would Jethro had known that had God not hardened Pharaoh's heart? No, and you and I probably wouldn't know it either. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And there again, there's blame. He's just showing that Pharaoh, it's Pharaoh's fault. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. What's that mean? He became a God-fearing worshiper, right? It's interesting, man. Just a little insight here. Geek out for a minute. You remember what Moses was telling Pharaoh, we got to go into the desert and we got to do what? We got to offer sacrifices. This is the first mention of a sacrifice after the Exodus, and it was a pagan Gentile that got converted and offered it, which is just a foreshadowing of what's to come. Listen, when somebody's heart gets hardened, when a ruler is obstinate, when there's, when there's perpetual unbelief, and God works through that, it's always for a greater purpose, guys. It's always so that more people may see him, love him, worship him, adore him. And that's the very reason this chapter is in your Bible. Because remember, Paul is dealing with an objection people have. He's saying, look, uh, Romans chapter 8 ended with nothing can separate us from God's love. God makes covenants. He keeps covenants. And people say, well, what about the covenant he made with Israel? And Paul is explaining to them that the Israelites were hardened so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. He's saying, listen, God is doing much more than you could ever imagine by this hardening. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing that we see in Scripture. Oh, man. There's more to share, but listen, guys. Uh, a lot of the other stuff I wanted to share with you comes into play in this next section. Because he, let me read it and then, then we'll, uh, we'll celebrate communion, okay? The rest of this passage after verse 14, or 18 rather, it says this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then listen to this, verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews also, but also from the Gentiles. Do you hear that? All these things that sometimes unsettle people, and raise objections in their minds. Oh, oh, God's sovereign, that scares me. Guys, listen. It's because God wants his glory to be seen. He wants it to be known. He wants it to be enjoyed. He wants it to be shared with others. That's why these things happen in history. We bear the blame when our hearts are hardened. But listen, God is majestic and he's in control. And he is engineering and orchestrating the course of history to its desired course and conclusion. And that is good news for you and I. That's not bad news. That's good news. And I would ask this, what troubles you? Is it that, that God can't be trusted? Is that really the objection you're raising? Or is it that God can't be controlled? Because God will not be controlled, my friends. If we could control God, then why is he even worthy of us, being worship, of, of us worshiping him? Here's the second thing. What troubles you? That salvation is in God's hands or that salvation is not in your hands? That's something to really ponder as we approach the Lord's table today. And I'll ask our, our servers to come, to come down, and if you have a child in the back, and I'll close with this. You know the hardening that happened, we read about earlier in the service in John 12. Ultimately, the Pharisees being hardened, and the Romans being hardened, uh, and the Jews being hardened, and Herod and Pilate being hardened, do you know what that led to? It led to the greatest redemptive event in the history of the world. It led to Jesus being crucified and to him being raised from the grave three days later that we're going to celebrate next week. And guys, if not for that, we would have absolutely no hope. No hope at all. So this whole chapter is good news. 
If you're one of the people who feel like you had a concussion and your nose is broke and you're spitting blood and teeth out, um, maybe this will help have you a different perspective that this is good news for us. For every single one of us, it's good news. Unless, unless, and the warning is extended again, unless you're hardening your heart. Don't do that. Do not harden your heart. Do not play fast and loose with light and revelation that God has given you. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't presume on God. Don't do that. He's gracious. But his, but his, and he's patient. He's patient God, but his patience has limits. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much that you are a sovereign God. You're a history-writing God. You're a covenant-keeping God. You're a God who sits supremely above all the false gods and goddesses of this world. You control the activity of Satan. You control the activity of every angel, fallen and elect, of every person saved and unsaved, of every animal, of every creature visible and invisible, seen and unseen. There is not one rogue maverick molecule in this universe that's operating outside of the sphere of your power and, and your majesty, Lord. And that's good news for us. We want to be under your dominion, Lord. We want you to be enthroned as the king that you say you are, and we want to be in your kingdom. We want to be submissive citizens who have surrendered to you, who are agents in your hands. So help us, Lord, to to have this right perspective and be with us as we celebrate communion today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.